Welcome to Anthropod. I'm Tarek Rahman, and today we're bringing you a recording of an invited session from the 2016 meeting of the American Anthropological Association entitled the 2016 U.S. Presidential Election. Anthropologists reflect on what just happened. Taking place a little over a week after the election, this panel provided an important platform for anthropological voices to come together and not only reflect on the election's outcome, but also where the discipline might go from here. The papers critically examine the role of race, neoliberalism, media, empty signifiers, colonialism, and the discipline of anthropology itself in the 2016 election, as well as call on anthropologists to facilitate empathy, translate analysis into action, and be attentive to alternative forms of political and economic organization. The panel's organizers, Shanti Parikh and Anjali Kagarud, provide the opening remarks, which are followed by presentations from Hugh Gusterson, Michaela Di Leonardo, Cecilia Van Hollen, Leith Mullings, Jonathan Rosa, Janine Waddell, Akhil Gupta, and Kenneth Guest. And just to note, Akhil Gupta wasn't able to be present at the panel, so his paper was read by Anjali Kagarud. So we hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired in some way by its numerous and powerful provocations. Good morning. Welcome to the 2016 U.S. presidential election panel called Anthropologists Reflect on What Just Happened. And actually, when we came up with this back in April, I had proposed the title, What the Fuck Just Happened? <laughs> and that probably would have been more appropriate. So I'm going to do opening remarks and then Angelique, and we'll turn it over to the panelists who you really came to hear. Anthropologists are metric skeptics. Our disciplinary genealogy is rooted in the belief that metrics, or big data, not only tell flimsy stories, but are ideologically inflicted with unspoken but shape-shifting assumptions constructed by people that we as anthropologists call the elites. But more important, anthropologists hold that the mere creation of metrics and big data are, in the Foucauldian sense, conspiratorial disciplinary regimes, or in a Marxist sense, acts of structural violence that work to flatten out, efface, or obfuscate otherwise colorful and often contradictory quotidian realities, or the common catchphrase in anthropology, lived experiences of ordinary people. So in many ways, this panel was conceived in April of this year as a greater call for anthropological and ethnographic presence in understanding what was unfolding with the US presidential election, both up top, but more importantly, on the ground. This panel was conceived before the primaries, before Trump and Clinton were declared their party nominees. But even back in April, when we constructed this panel, when Trump was silencing and butchering his Republican opponents with his unapologetic bullying tactics, it was clear that something was brewing in the U.S. that was securely grounded in our country's long, racialized, patriarchal, and class-divided history. Hence, when white liberals were shocked in a state of disbelief and paralyzed by the Trump victory, Many of my colleagues in black studies, Latino, queer studies, Middle Eastern studies, and St. Louis, where Ferguson is, but also in other parts of the United States and elsewhere, 
We painfully sighed, as a colleague of mine said, this is the world that we live in. Deeply disappointed and scary that almost half of those who went to the polls cast votes for the most indisputably unqualified and outwardly bigoted candidate, unfortunately, from the ethnographic perspective, the result is far from illogical. As panelists discuss, the election can be understood as a rejection of the economic neglect of neoliberal policies and the self-righteous arrogance of the elites. We might be included in that. But to many brown, black, queer, non-Christian, and otherwise non-heteronormative, non-white people, this election is what we already were experiencing on the ground as a violent rejection of attempt towards social justice and equality. That the next president of the United States was the most vocal member of the birther movement that sought to delegitimize the first black president of the United States and usher in the acceptance of anti-blackness movement is no coincidence. In September of this year, the conservative political journalist Selma Zito wrote in The Atlantic, the press takes Trump literally, but not seriously. His supporters take him seriously, but not literally. Although Zito correctly predicted a Trump victory, she might be proven wrong that his supporters don't take his bigotry seriously. Herein lies my sadistic hope. The card-carrying Planned Parenthood black girl and me involved in the earlier days of the Black Lives Movement with an immigrant father from India hopes that Trump keeps true to what we saw on the campaign trail. I hope that Trump keeps offending as many good liberals as he can with his governmental appointments. From Pence's anti-woman and anti-LBGT policies to Stephen Bannon's anti-Semitic machine to Michelle Rhee's desire to privatize education and squeeze out the poor, and the list goes on. For, for as long as just brown skin and queer folks are offended, we have little collective chance of keeping the pressure on. So sit back, enjoy what some of the top anthropological thinkers think about what in the hell just happened and what in the shit we should do about it. I, <laughs> I now turn it over to my co-organizer and my mentor, Angelique Hagerud, who will frame this session. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. And there will be a chance at the end for question and answer, so take out your notebooks and start jotting. Thank you. Good morning, everyone, uh, and welcome. The reason we're in this um, cavernous room is because the AAA wanted to be able to record this session so that it would be available to a wider audience. And as Hugh suggested earlier, please feel free to move forward um, to make it a little more intimate. Um, very warm thanks to Shanti Parikh, who did um, so much of the organizing work for this panel, and as it turns out, for many other panels at this conference. And uh, thanks also to the AES and SANA for co-sponsoring this panel. It's wonderful for us to have the opportunity to reflect together on this election as well as the remarkable political mobilizing and protest it has sparked nationwide. I want to share with you some of the framing questions that we circulated in advance to the panelists. First, 
what is the particular value of anthropology in analyzing elections and this election in particular? Second, how do we make sense of the rise of Donald Trump and what does his wide support tell us about the contemporary state of US uh, political institutions and about citizens' anxieties, divisions, fears, and hopes? Third, how do we assess the role of news media and social media in shaping the campaign and the election outcome? And what was the role of right-wing media in making Trump's candidacy viable? And of course, we should also add, what was the role of fake news? Fourth, what have we learned about intersections of race, gender, ethnicity, and class in this campaign? Fifth, in this year's resurgent nativism and nationalism, what parallels do we see in other parts of the world and in earlier periods of US history, such as the 1850s and the 1920s? In what ways, if any, is Trump's candidacy exceptional? And finally, what does this election tell us about the health and future of US democracy as perceived in the United States and abroad? It's uh, my pleasure now to introduce Professor Jonathan Rosa from Stanford University, who has very kindly agreed to chair this roundtable. Thank you very much. I'm not Jonathan Rosa. I'm Hugh Gustafson, the first speaker. Uh, Orange Frankenstein, seven propositions in seven minutes. U.S. presidential elections are decided by marginal shifts in voter turnout and among swing voters. The media then makes believe that the country has had a massive change of heart. So we must bear in mind that Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by almost one and a half million votes. Trump got 400,000 votes less than Mitt Romney, who lost his presidential election. Only 25% of registered voters voted for Trump. And CNN exit polls found that 49% of those who did vote for Trump had major reservations about him. Two, the election was a referendum on neoliberalism. There's a straight line between the Brexit vote and Trump's victory. Both were effectively referenda on the new neoliberal order. This neoliberal order and its ancillary violence has generated massive cross-border movement of migrants and refugees. It's also created new empires of wealth in London, Boston, New York, Washington, and Silicon Valley while hollowing out rural areas and old industrial communities in Northern England and the American Rust Belt. And in Obamacare, the American people have had a neoliberal approach to healthcare reform forced upon them. Brexit and Trump won strong support in geographical areas on the losing end of neoliberalism and among the white working class and those without college education. If upcoming elections in France and the Netherlands produce similar outcomes, then we may, as Rushia Sharma suggests, be embarking on an era of deglobalization. Three, the neoliberal Democratic Party has abandoned its traditional core constituency. In his provocative new book, Listen Liberal, Thomas Frank argues that under the Clintons and Obama, the Democratic Party abandoned the unionized working class as its core constituency and remade itself as the party of professionals and knowledge workers in liberal alliance with minorities. It lectured the victims of deindustrialization on the virtues of education in the new knowledge economy, implicitly holding them responsible for their own abject situation. And in search of the big donations now essential to political campaigns, 
It rebranded itself as the party of wealthy cosmopolitans, the Davos class. It became the party of Martha's Vineyard, and Trump was able to run against them as a blue-collar billionaire. The result in the election was that a Republican presidential candidate won Michigan and Pennsylvania for the first time since 1992. While Obama won union households by 28 points, Clinton only won them by eight points. And there was a 35-point difference in the votes of whites with and without college education. The instinctive reaction of many Democrats that Trump supporters are racist and misogynists, however true, only compounds these dynamics. Four, it's the petty bourgeoisie as well as blue-collar workers. The media keep emphasizing the support of steel workers, auto workers, and coal miners for Trump. And surely he couldn't have won without the support of blue-collar workers who voted for Obama before. But when I read media profiles of Trump supporters, I keep coming across such labels as small business owner, auto dealer, pharmacist, and so on. In other words, what old-fashioned Marxists would call the petty bourgeoisie. The petty bourgeoisie was the backbone of European fascism in the 1930s. More recently, it was a core constituency of Brexit. This class tends to be intensely patriotic, antipathetic to state regulation, resentful of the educated cosmopolitans above them, and intensely fearful of slipping into the working class below them. I know what I'm talking about, it's my own social class of origin. Trump won their allegiance with his motto, make America great again, his promise of economic deregulation, and his hostility to ethnic others. Five, Trump mastered the politics of scapegoating. If there are patterns in history, one is surely that moments of economic dislocation incite scapegoating of ethnic others. And the worst kind of charismatic leader then exploits this. Hitler and the Jews and Milosevic and the Bosnian Muslims are the most extreme examples. More recently, we've seen ugly acts of violence and intimidation in post-Brexit Britain. Trump ran a campaign that scapegoated Muslims, African Americans, and Latinos. And in a context where he won the white vote by a 21-point margin, his victory has to be understood as in part what Van Jones has called a white lash. Part of the underlying dynamic here is that, in Roger Lancaster's words, liberal identity politics has produced its altar, white working class identity, which for the time being will pursue its interests separate from other sectors of the working class. At the same time, given the number of voters who pulled the lever for Obama in 2012 and then for Trump in 2016, we have to be nuanced in our analysis of the role of race in this election. Six, social science also lost this election. It's easy to gloat about the positivist social scientists whose polls failed to foresee Trump's victory, calling into question the validity of their epistemology and methodology. At the same time, when journalists and others ask me what anthropology has to say about Trump supporters, I feel uncomfortable for good reason. Trump's victory confronts our discipline with an incompleteness in the project of repatriated anthropology. While we've been busy studying weapon scientists and financial traders at one end of the social scale and crack dealers and immigrant communities at the other, we have, with the exception of some fine work by such anthropologists as Chris Wally and Eric Ramirez, not had so much to say about the kinds of people who supported Trump. Small business owners, small family farmers, pipe fitters, and so on. Nor have we produced ethnographic studies of the political parties or of movements such as the Tea Party. Seeking an ethnography of the Tea Party for my class on neoliberalism, I could only find books by the sociologists Ali Hochschild and Theta Scotchpole. Why have we not produced an ethnography of the Tea Party? 
Finally, seven, anthropologists must help protect and rebuild civil society. It's vital that anthropologists help rebuild a progressive civil society by publicly analyzing loudly and bearing witness to the damage a Trump presidency does to the country, but especially to those vulnerable communities for whom historically we have advocated. This will require melding intellectual and advocacy work in the way Boaz did, and it may require physical as well as intellectual courage. At the same time, we should be careful not to isolate these initiatives of resistance in the liberal ghetto, and we should be alert to resistance from unexpected quarters. In the state apparatus and its penumbra in Washington, D.C., so far the most outspoken criticism of Trump has come from the national security establishment. Former CIA director and NSA director Mike Hayden had an opinion piece in the Washington Post after the election, declaring Trump clearly unfit to be president. And the national security establishment is now actively discussing the circumstances in which it might refuse to obey orders from the new president. We will have to work with allies wherever we find them. I'm Mikaela Di Leonardo, and I'm going to speak much more narrowly about this election. Today, I'm discussing only black American media's role in the Obama Democratic Party coalition that just spectacularly fell apart in this Trumpocalypse. I'm finishing a book, Grown Folks Radio, based on 12 years ethnography on the most popular and politically consequential black American radio show you never heard of, the Tom Joyner Morning Show, which broadcasts drive time weekdays from 100 black radio stations nationally to an audience of more than 8 million. TJMS is a true variety show, offering music, comedy, information, and politics and activism, all in one aesthetically pleasing bundle to its core audience, adult to middle-aged, working to middle-class black Americans. It provides them, us, with a black working-class version of John Stewart's, John Oliver's, Stephen Colbert's, or Samantha Bee's sardonic political humor. In 2012, I published a piece in American Ethnologist on the show's progressive politics. Feminist, pro-LGBTQ, broadly anti-racist, social democratic, and often anti-imperialist, despite its fully commercial status. And on its major yet unrecognized role in President Obama's 2008 victory, I noted that the mainstream chattering classes, journalists, scholars, had failed to report the TJMS's activism working with the NAACP and the Teamsters Union, registering hundreds of thousands of new black voters, urging early voting, and providing a hotline that not only informed people how to register and where their polling sites were, but also had thousands of civil rights attorneys on tap to intervene against voter suppression efforts. So TJMS's work, along with that of other black media and civil rights organizations, had real material political consequences. Black American women voted in higher percentages than any other American population in 2008. And Brookings concluded that minority voters put Barack Obama over the top in 2012. The show, show truly constitutes a mediatized, progressive black counterpublic. And President Obama himself has recognized that re reality repeatedly on the show. So how did this largest media platform for African Americans deal with this particular presidential election and its aftermath. What was most surprising to me this time around was a softening, 
While the show continued its voter hotline, they didn't coalesce with other organizations as they had previously. They didn't engage in all-out efforts to register voters and assure access to the ballot until the very last months of the campaign. Nevertheless, they utterly despised Trump and strongly supported Hillary Clinton's bid. They had her and President Obama and Michelle Obama on frequently. They had the very best put-downs, better jokes than anyone else's. And their Facebook parties during each debate drew upwards of 800,000 people. This relative lack of effort was not because Clinton is a white woman. The TJMS campaigned hard for Gore in 2000 and for Kerry in 2004. And the show is distinctly feminist. A partial explanation is that Hillary Clinton seriously annoyed show anchors during the 2008 campaign, for reasons I don't have time to explain. A bigger factor is that the Clinton campaign and the DNC largely failed to engage with black American media this time around. In the days after the election, TJMS was in shock and mourning, but also defiant. Commentators stressed the, the deleterious effect of the 2013 Holder v. Shelby Supreme Court decision, which gutted Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act in suppressing black vote. News anchor Roland Martin argued that we are at the end of a third reconstruction, living inside a third wave of historical white backlash against black American political mobilization. Reverend Al Sharpton added, quote, this is as serious as it gets. We have to build a movement of resistance. We survived George Wallace, we survived Reagan. We have to use our history to find out what works and what doesn't work. Two days later, show anchor Sybil Wilkes erupted at the claims by two women celebrities, Diamond and Silk, among the tiny group of black Trump supporters. They were asserting that Trump is not a racist and a xenophobe. Now this is Sybil Wilkes. Tell that to the people who are writing all of those really racist things like build the wall and scaring children to death because they might have to be taken out of this country even though they are US citizens. Tell that to the Muslims who are having their head wraps ripped off of them and telling them it's a new America. Tell that to all the black kids who are being told that Donald Trump is in charge, you all must leave this country now. Now, on Wednesday night, our keynoter, Melissa Harris Perry, said repeatedly and theatrically, where are my, my black girl leaders? Where are my black girl leaders? On the TJMS, that's one place they are. My last words today go to one of the show's comics, Chris Paul. His heartbroken morning after the election political doggerel manages to include most progressive points except Islamophobia, homophobia, and the environmental threat, but I assure you, those were all mentioned elsewhere. Chris Paul, there are no jokes to tell and no funny songs to make because we're living a nightmare with four years to wake. Last night, my country, tis of thee, lost all of her majestic dignity. We elected a person who his entire campaign was built on insults and inflicting pain. He lit the fire of the angry white male and let it burn on his campaign trail. And on election day, that angry white hate carried him to wins in majority states. What do we say to our daughters about electing a man who bragged about assault and doing things with his hands? And what do our Latino neighbors make of this win and a new America that doesn't include them? And where do we as black Americans go from here? Where do we all? Thank you. Uh, my name is Cecilia Van Hollen, and I'd like to thank Shanti and Angelique for organizing the panel today. Um, 
I've been thinking lately about the establishment. And what I mean by that is that I've been thinking about the concept of the establishment that's been bandied about with uh, so much venom over the course of this election. It seems the establishment is some sort of incurable, infectious disease that no one wants to catch, and no one wants to carry the stigma of having come into contact with it. But what exactly is this thing called the establishment in this election cycle, and why is it so reviled? It's often equated with career politicians and with Washington, or the swamp, and particularly the dysfunction and inability of Congress to pass legislation for the past six years. Sometimes it's reserved for people who hold leadership positions in the Democratic Party and the GOP and with endorsements made by these players. Sometimes it is equated with people and companies who use their wealth to gain political power via campaign donations. According to David Weigel, the establishment was first used as a rhetorical weapon in American politics by Phyllis Schlafly in her conservative manifesto in 1964, in which she equated it with members of the old money, Ivy-educated, liberal Republican old boys network in the Northeast, who were thought to be out of touch with the majority of ordinary Americans. It has retained this general association for people on the right as well as the left, and now also includes concerns about the lack of gender, racial, and ethnic diversity among our elected officials. In this presidential campaign, the establishment has been an epithet used by people with diametrically opposed political ideologies and agendas to attack their adversaries. It was evoked on the one hand by Ted Cruz, the most extreme opponent of big government, in opposition to the initially presumed nominee Jeb Bush. On the other hand, it was used by Bernie Sanders, the most vocal advocate for public services against Hillary Clinton. Sanders also accused Planned Parenthood and the human rights campaign advocating for LGBTQ civil rights as being part of the establishment when these groups endorsed Clinton. As a long-term public servant in Congress, it's hard for Sanders to dodge the career politician and inside the Beltway monikers, even if he most certainly is not linked to the interests of Wall Street and as an independent was not part of the party leadership and indeed his accusations of the DNC's maneuvering for Clinton were validated. And Cruz, a graduate of two Ivies, has also been a politician for most of his career and is probably best known by his supporters and detractors for his move in 2013 as the leader of the Tea Party to shut down the government in his unsuccessful effort to defund the Affordable Care Act, further adding to the dysfunction, dysfunctional stalemate in Congress. But it was Donald Trump, in the end, who would win the anti-establishment competition within the entire GOP slate. Trump, the Ivy-educated billionaire, has been a prolific contributor to both Republican and Democratic campaigns in the past and boasted about the political favors he was able to access as a result. Yet he emerged as the leader of many uh, primarily white men and women who feel marginalized by the establishment. 
and he claimed grassroots credibility for paying for his campaign himself, although I think perhaps uh, we could more accurately say, accurately say that the taxpayers uh, paid for the campaign if, in fact, he did not pay federal taxes for the past 18 years. As election day drew near and Trump seemed increasingly desperate, he accused the establishment in the form of the liberal media and party leadership on both sides, including the GOP who were jumping ship, of rigging the entire election. Even Hillary Clinton, who is viewed as the epitome of the establishment, tried to shake off the label in a primary debate saying, quote, Senator Sanders is the only person, I think, who would characterize me, a woman running, to be the first woman president as exemplifying the establishment. It is really quite amusing to me, unquote. I'm sure all of us watching groaned and were hardly amused. So the establishment seems to be at once everywhere and nowhere. It reminds me of what Levi Strauss, uh, of, of the way that Levi Strauss characterized Mao's understanding of mana as a floating signifier. For Levi Strauss, the concept of mana had come to, quote, represent an indeterminate value of signification in itself devoid of meaning, of meaning and thus susceptible of receiving any meaning at all. Further, he wrote, quote, that explains the apparently insoluble antinomies attaching to the notion of mana, unquote. Whereas for Mao's mana was power par excellence that accorded respect and veneration, the establishment is a sinister power that must be obliterated regardless of the ideologies and practices of particular individuals who are said to embody the establishment. Postcolonial theories of othering are useful here. We know that othering is a way of claiming essential and hierarchically ranked differences between superior uh, and morally good self versus inferior, debased, and usually dangerous other. We know that it tells us more about the idealized projection of the self than anything about empiric empirically real about the other. If the other is the establishment, the self is the outsider. This discourse has tremendous emotional power to energize people who feel, and indeed often are, powerless for a wide variety of reasons, and who want to attach their loyalty to an anti-establishment movement. As Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, quote, there are always two parties, the establishment and the movement, unquote. But when the idea of the establishment is used indiscriminately to further any and all political futures, it should give us pause. Two ways in which the divergent anti-establishment discourses converged in this election uh, were in their mutual dislike of compromise and career politicians. This crystallized in the general election between Trump and Clinton. The antipathy towards compromise is deeply troubling in this sharply divided country. Anthropology, which values the ability to empathize and understand other people's perspectives could serve as an antidote. As for the attack on career politicians, I find myself scratching my head trying to think if there is any other career for which the prefix career turns it into a slur. 
I try to imagine the following as disqualifying smears. Career plumber. Career engineer. Career doctor. Career anthropologist. Do we undervalue the art of governance so much as to believe that it does not require the kind of hard work and dedication that we would value in any other career? Now, Donald Trump has been elected to be our next president. Reporters have been quick to point with a kind of see he gotcha glee that his cabinet has been stacked with so-called establishment figures. But we need to encourage greater discernment in our critique to name the individuals, the specific policies for which they stand and their proven track records instead of falling back on the empty signifier of the establishment boogeyman. Thank you. I'm Lisa Mullings, and I would like to thank the organizers for putting this together, and thank all of you for coming out to hear us. The catastrophic election of the Republican candidate for President of the United States clearly indicates the need to analyze how the axes of race, class, gender, and of course others, sexual orientation, education, age, etc., intersect to bring about certain social conditions. Though demonstration of the consequences of each system of stratification is important, the difficult part of the analysis, often left undone, is to explain how they interact in particular historical contexts to produce a given set of circumstances. Any analysis must wait, must await the final vote counts, but I invite you to think with me as I review some of the positions of the pundits. How did gender play out in this election? How gender played out is probably the most obvious, although also the most astounding. The headline of an article by Nina Burleigh in Time Magazine reads, quote, the presidential election was a referendum on gender and women lost. She goes on to say that there has never been a campaign so split along gender lines. But she's hard put to explain how and why. Trump's campaign was arguably a return to the crudest and most extreme forms of sexism and uh, demonstrations of masculinity that undergird capitalism, gender, subordination, and racism. However, the majority of white women voted for Trump by 53%, with Hillary only receiving 43% of white women. Among the, those 51% of college-educated women, uh, and this was the only demographic that ha Hillary actually won. Uh, yeah, she won the 50% the 50 of college-educated women. 94% of black women voters cast the ballot for Hillary. 
among them 91% of college-educated black women. What to make of this? This raises issues that I hope were put to bed several decades ago. To what extent do certain versions of feminism rest on white supremacy? Is it the case that when forced to choose between gender and race, the majority of white women will choose race? There is no question that racism in all its forms, Islamophobia, anti-black, anti-immigrant, anti-Latino, anti-Semitism, homophobia, and all the other uh, deplorables were front and center in this presidential election. It is ironic, although not really ironic, that the Electoral College, originally established to prevent direct democracy and to give more representation to slave states, has resulted in yet another election in which the winner of the popular vote did not become president. Throughout the years, the GOP has played the race card, though with more subtlety in its more recent iterations. Some of you will remember Reagan's conference, constant references to the welfare clean, queen, uh, the escaped convict, Willie Horton, who happened to be black. As they say, all dog whistles to signal negative images of African Americans. This approach continued with, the, with questioning the citizenship of Barack Obama, calling him a liar, vowing to make him a one-term president and refusing to work with him. The history laid the groundwork for the open racism of Donald Trump, the logical outcome of the path the Republican Party had selected. As several writers have asserted, many in Trump's audience, too, too many in Trump's audience, make America great again meant make white supremacy great again. Once again, we confront the dilemma of the explanatory status of race and class, which is by both the right and the left contested in different ways. We should note here that in keeping with the US aversion to recognizing class, conclusions about class are often measured by income and education. And I thoroughly agree with you that if you look at some of the, ma the maps, uh, you, you, know, you may see small farmers, small businessmen. So the conclusion that it's working class, uh, I think we have to examine a little further. While I doubt that anyone here would deny the racism promulgated by the Trump, by the Trump campaign, there will, be no, there will no doubt be differing assessments of how to understand the roles of race and class. For example, Greenwald asserts that while there was clearly racism involved in the campaign, the election of Obama in 2008 and 2012 demonstrate that economic anxieties were the driving force and racism was not central to the election. Van Jones and, Reb and Robin Kelly label this election a white lash, underscoring the unity of the white vote. Both black and white working class people and others are tremendously disaffected by the structure of inequality and the uh, stagnant economic conditions, 
but black workers did not vote for Trump. The Trump campaign mainstreamed racism and won the majority of, all, of whites of all ages, genders, and levels of education, as I said, with the exception of white college-educated women. Let's give a hand for white college-educated women. <laughs> Catherine Kramer and others discuss the politics of resentment, rural white people's sense that they are not getting their fear of the resources, resentment of the establishment, and the changing world. This issue is further complicated by the fact that the median income of the Trump voter is uh, 70,000, which is 20,000 more than the national median income. So again, we have to think about what, what, who this segment was or is. Clearly, neither party represented a program that came anywhere near addressing the concerns of the majority of the people. The U.S. default to racism and the long-standing history of scapegoating racialized people and accepting the diminishing returns of white privilege in the U.S., which has been discussed so ably by some of our colleagues, comes into play. But are there economic conditions, such as those of 2008 and 2012 election, in which people are able to subvert their racism or their default to racism and be clearer about their own interests. In the US, it is clear that race and class are intertwined in complex ways and pose, in complex ways, and to pose an either or formulation or to reduce race to class is not useful. So let me close with a few encouraging items to note. <laughs> First, Trump was elected by only approximately a fourth of the population able to vote. And remember that Bernie had a huge following among young people. Though they will have a much more difficult road, counter-hegemonic movements will continue. Across the country, tens and thousands of mostly young people of all phenotypes are in the streets in many cities protesting Trump's election. In these very dangerous times, we would do well to remember the oft-repeated words, quote, if they come for me in the morning, they will be coming for you at night. Now more than ever, it is important not only to analyze these new conditions, but to act on them. Thank you. Good morning, my name is Jonathan Rosa. First, I'd like to thank Shanti and Angelique for their prescient organization of this roundtable and for inviting me to participate in it alongside this esteemed group of anthropologists. My comments today take up the question, what just happened, both temporally, or if you'll indulge my linguistic anthropological tendencies chronotopically, but also ethically. That is, what just happened, as in how can we understand the election in relation to the current US moment and long-standing global relations and processes that produced it, so what's new here, and what just happened, as in what ethical principles have been upheld, reconfigured, or violated in this election, 
That is, what are the grounds on which this election can be understood as a breach of justice versus a systematic reflection of the forms of racial democracy and racial capitalism that are fundamental to the US nation state project? On the one hand, my goal is to deprovincialize Trump, to locate broader historical, political, and economic constellations of which his election is but one coordinate. On the other, I seek to highlight the ways in which answers to the question, what just happened, demonstrate profoundly disparate racialized interpretations of reality. So first, what's new here? In what ways does this election reflect a unique time and space, and from what perspectives? How could this political figure have mobilized purportedly anachronistic forms of racism, misogyny, xenophobia, etc., in ways that, that did not harm but in fact enhanced the viability of his candidacy? Many commentators have noted that this election is profound evidence of how far removed we are from the mythical post-racial society that was allegedly ushered in and secured with the two-term presidency of Barack Obama. In fact, in such discussions of post-racialism, it is not clear to me that we agree on what exactly we mean when we talk about race and racism. Mainstream contemporary conceptions of race typically begin from always already constituted racialized bodies at the same time that they attempt to overcome biological racism, which results in the paradoxical embrace and disavowal of racial difference. This reduces anti-racism to the rejection of biological racial inferiority and the investment in racial difference so long as it is institutionally domesticated as diversity and inclusion. These dynamics enlist racialized subjects to function as effective repositories that confirm liberal goodwill and perpetuate racial hierarchies. Thus, the figure of our first president of color does not destabilize, but in fact legitimates and in many ways amplifies perpetual imperial war, mass deportation, and mass incarceration. This is what happens when we dehistoricize race through the institutionalization of diversity and frame anti-racism as the, the legitimation of overdetermined racialized bodies. In contrast to body-based diversity projects and conceptions of race, Barner Hesse presents a colonial constitution of race thesis, which holds that race is not in the eye of the beholder or on the body of the objectified, but instead an inherited, western, modern colonial practice of violence, assemblage, superordination, exploitation, and segregation, demarcating the colonial rule of Europe over non-Europe. This perspective locates the origins of race in coloniality, not bodies, and directs attention to the ways that colonial distinctions are recursively remapped within and across nation-state settings. The inability to grapple with the US as a colonial society, as well as the illegibility of global coloniality, makes this election of Trump and its ties to the rise of related crypto-fascist figures throughout the world surprising and exceptional from some perspectives and entirely predictable and mundane from others. The decoupling of race and colonialism is evident in current calls to eradicate white supremacy following the election. I've heard many colleagues utter the phrase white supremacy very comfortably throughout this conference. What exactly does white supremacy look like? Is it Donald Trump, his supporters, the Klan? From what perspectives might this conference and Americanist anthropology more broadly look like white supremacy? How many anthropological conversations are predicated upon the absence of black and indigenous theorists as scholarly interlocutors? By extension, how is anthropological expertise systematically reproduced through the avoidance of race as foundational to colonial realities that are rarely seen as such? Based on these questions, I have been troubled by the collective conversation that we are having about what anthropologists can and should do in this moment. The more important question 
is what anthropologists already have done and have always been doing as participants in a profoundly colonial, racialized intellectual project. Following Harrison's longstanding call for us to decolonize anthropology, we must continue to interrogate how this discipline was produced by and is complicit in the reproduction of the very hierarchies that are positioned as somehow outside of it. The fact that this feels like a new moment is a profound reflection of the problem. The discovery of the ongoing significance of race and the limitations of strict class analyses strikes me not only as disingenuous, but also insidious. The best, the best that we could hope to do is fall in line, and the back of the line at that, with existing communities and movements that have never stopped strategizing and struggling. I'll now briefly touch on my other interpretation of what just happened as a way of thinking about what kind of justice has been served or violated in this election. A particularly ironic component of liberal performances of vulnerability, suffering, and anxiety in the aftermath of the election is the discursive claim that Trump poses a threat to our fundamental democratic institutions. The inability to see this as the liberal Janus face of Trump's Make America Great Again is remarkable. Based on this formulation, which U.S. democratic institutions purported integrity should we be worried about? Electoral politics? The criminal justice system? Education? The military? When exactly were these institutions not fundamentally rooted in and reproductive of racial democracy and racial capitalism? The framing of Trump as an exception to, rather than indictment of, liberal democracy leads us to approach this as a moment of recuperation rather than reimagination. What alternative political and economic orders are possible, indeed necessary? What populations and communities have, out of necessity, long since been imagining and enacting these alternatives? And how might we take our cue from them? Thank you. Good morning, I'm Janine Waddell, and I apologize, I lost my voice um, yesterday, so I'm gonna do the best I can. Um, today I'd like to address three questions briefly. The first is, why outsiderism? The second, why Trump? The third, why anthropology and anthropologists? So the title of my 2014 book, Unaccountable, is How the Elite Corrupted Our Finances, Freedom, and Politics and Created an Outsider Class, an Outsider Class. And I, I um, say this title not just, not only to, to advertise my book and be almost as shameless as Donald Trump, but because it points to what happened and what's happening. So my first question, why outsiderism? Well, many have been talking about populism, but in my understanding, the defining characteristic of Trump's supporters is outsiderism, it's being against the system. Even if they have little idea about what to replace it with. Two years ago when I published Unaccountable, I wrote, um, more and more, we feel like we're outsiders, excluded from a system we used to know how to negotiate, but no longer quite do. An enraged population has been knocking on the door trying to get in, and last Tuesday they burst down the door and took the whole house with it. 
Trump advertised himself as an outsider, and indeed, though rich, until now, he hasn't, had, he hasn't been a, a policy-shaping elite. Trumpism and the, the, the movement that he's um, tied into is not limited to the United States. Brexit has been mentioned, but the, this epidemic of anger and outsiderism has erupted across Europe um, from Poland and Hungary to Germany, where the AfD party, the alternative for Deutschland uh, party, only three years old, um, actually beat Angela Merkel in her home state uh, in the most recent elections. Uh, France, where Marine Le Pen um, is, had, did a strong showing in the, in the, in the presidential elections, and um, Austria, um, elections earlier this year, where for the first time uh, since World War II, no establishment uh, candidate made it to us a top, uh, the top slot. Instead, there will be a runoff between their Bernie Sanders figure from the, from the Green Party and their Trump-like figure who's actually a, a fascist um, from, the, from the far right. I've seen this outsiderism before. In Eastern Europe under communism in the 1980s, I witnessed what happened when there's a great gap between ruling elites and society. Civic trust is virtually absent and people sink into we, outsiders, versus they, ruling elites, this kind of divide. Um, as I've been writing, more and more, what's ha what happened, what I observed under communism is, or, or this country is becoming reminiscent of what I observed under, under communism in, in the waning years. Um, and the West in general. Over the last four decades, nearly all this, the so-called developed industrialized democracies have been experiencing a decrease in public trust in government. In the 1990s, even countries long known for strong civic trust, such as Sweden and Norway, recorded um, a decline. Um, from parliaments and presidencies to banks to the media, public opinion polls the world over show the declining faith in leaders and institutions. In the United States, um, confidence in institutions, according to Gallup's most recent uh, survey, shows that trust by, has decreased by double-digit percentages in recent years for 12 out of 17 institutions, including the signature ones of the presidency, Congress, banks, and the press. Ordinary people sense something is amiss even if they have trouble identifying who is responsible. And, I, and, and they've been branding top players in institutions as corrupt. The Tea Party from the right that arose in 2009 targeted big banks, big um, Wall Street, sorry, targeted big government. Um, Occupy Wall Street that arose a few years later talk, uh, targeted Wall Street and big banks. The two are peas out of the same pod. In my analysis, the, the real problem is the intertwining of, 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 of banks, of Wall Street, with, with, with government. 
um, but they identified um, that problem. And of course, we 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 saw the we saw those two movements in Bernie Sanders and 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 Donald Trump. Practitioners of what? Um, well, so they've been branding. They've been. Um, playing on this corruption. Trump, as it's been mentioned, capitalized on and misdirected this awareness of what I call the new corruption, systemic and legal activities, legalized activities that nevertheless violate the public interest, violate public trust. Practitioners of this new corruption that I've been writing about hone their political influencing through means that are several steps removed from direct power and difficult to detect, including roles that mix business interests and public policy with think tanks or philanthropies. The Clinton Foundation is just one example. And workarounds that undermine standard processes, Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, as Secretary of State, again, just emblematic of a much wider pattern. Many are what I call shadow lobbyists, such as, say, an economist from a prestigious university who testifies before congressional bodies in the media using his professor label while he is really shilling for the investment bank for which he consults. Ironically, Trump is courting a number of shadow lobbyists for his cabinet chief counsel, Newt Gingrich, Rudolph Giuliani, Michael Flynn, I read last night, whom I've written about, who uh, in his consulting firm, Shills for Turkey. Um, he's been appointed the new national security advisor. My, my years of research on this new, new corruption and influence elites show that nearly every policy of venue affecting our lives from foreign policy to, um, to, to uh, healthcare, to um, economic policy um, show that, that have indeed been rigged to varying extents by elites shaping decisions to fit their own self-interested agendas. Ordinary people rightly see the worst financial calamity and global downturn since the Great Depression as a major case in point. Nearly three quarters of Americans say they think the economy is rigged in favor of certain groups according to a recent poll. And finally, on this point, the evidence points to a close relationship between the way that elites rig the system, the surge in income inequality, the decline, dramatic decline in trust in institutions and leaders, and the rise of anti-establishment movements um, in a demagogue like Trump. So my second question is, why Trump? And here I'd like to, to add to the, the analysis of my colleagues about um, on race and class issues um, and add some analysis from my, own, from my own experience. Well, Trump embodies the anti-system. He's a celebrity. He came into people's living rooms via reality TV. He's a celebrity with no government experience whatsoever. He embodies the anti-system and he emphasized that he wanted to dismantle the system. He's been a creature of social media and Twitter um, in, a, in our world where people, where people live in our own information universes. And he breaks taboos. 
uh, anthropologist Tanya Luberman uh, using the work of Mary Douglas on purity and, and, and danger has written that Trump's appeal has something to do with the religious imagination, the qualities that make him seem subhuman to some, his willingness to float, flout all codes of respectful behavior, make him superhuman to others. This transcendent quality might also explain why the facts do not seem to matter much to his followers. We are in the domain of faith, not that of reason. I'd add, like to add yet another point, that um, as a celebrity, Trump is 24-7 is um, in, in private life, and there is research showing that, um, that, as, that as freedom in private life has increased, we can all have blue hair, we can do as much body piercing as we want, freedom in professional life has, has declined. We are all increasingly regulated, um, at the, um, audited, evaluated at the workplace. We know this from our own university experience to, uh, as a case in point. But as a celebrity, celebrities are just celebrities. Trump is 24-7 in, in, his, in his private life. Now, some of these, these anti-system stances and qualities that I've just mentioned also apply to, Canada, uh, to, to comparable figures in Europe. This is not just apparently an American um, phenomenon. I actually spent my, the, the pre previous year on sabbatical uh, based in, in, in Berlin, so I was watching this up close and personal. My third question, why anthropology? Well, we anthropologists are uniquely equipped to make connections among systems. We have a holistic approach, so we can look at what's happening in media and entertainment and finance and a political system and see how they are interconnected and one flows and infiltrates into another. We as anthropologists, unlike other social scientists, are uniquely equipped to do that. Um, and we also have the methods. We have ethnography and interviewing. Now it's very interesting. I teach in a school of, of um, Janine Wattel, in case you didn't, don't, I don't think I said my name. I teach in a school of, a Shar School of Policy and Government, and, and my, most of my colleagues are political scientists. And uh, the political scientists in this election who got it right do ethnography and interviewing. The one guy in my school, Justin Guest, got it right, and he's getting media attention now because he did ethnography in Youngstown, Ohio, and among a comparable community in, in the UK. Catherine Kramer, her work has been mentioned, also a political scientist. She's from um, Wisconsin. She did intense interviewing, um, intensive interviewing in, in Wisconsin. So this is our moment for anthropology. We have an opportunity to showcase and show the importance of our perspective and our holistic perspective and our methods. We're in a period of tremendous disruption and turbulence and that, that it, to my mind, clearly, clearly includes higher education. If we don't take up the opportunity now to showcase our work and to put ourselves at the forefront, we are going to be left to stew in our own demise. Thank you.
Hi again. Um, Professor Akhil Gupta was not able to be here today, and I'm very happy to read his paper on his behalf. And here it is. As pollsters collectively lick their wounds over what went wrong, and as we all try to fathom what happened, and steel ourselves for four tumultuous years, not knowing how much will go wrong in the world, there are a few surprising positive features um, of this election. At least the presidential elections repudiated a common negative narrative that many of us, including me, that is Professor Gupta, held about the impact of the Citizens United decision on the electoral process. While I would be the last person to argue that in anything positive will ever emerge from a decision that legalizes the tight grip that large capitalists already have on the electoral process, the campaigns of Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump were refutations of the argument that only those candidates who received large sums of money from shadowy financiers were capable of winning. Bernie Sanders had no such backing, and yet he gave Clinton a run for her money, pun intended. Trump easily defeated Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio, who were backed by dark money. Of course, um, of these two, of course, Sanders is the only candidate who mounted a campaign without the backing of dark money, because one could argue that all of Trump's personal wealth is dark money, <laughs> uh, obtained through backroom deals and collusion with a range of government officials and without paying any taxes. Not paying taxes, even if legal, is the result of previous lobbying and deal-making that subverts the heart of the democratic process. After Citizens United, I was convinced that the golden rule, in quotes, was unimpeachable. What's the golden rule? Those who have the gold make the rules. But this election provided a surprise in that regard. Left and right-wing populism, which has a long history in America, has been dormant in recent decades, and it emerged as a forceful presence. It showed fissures in the suturing of democracy with capitalism, a suturing that was previ previously accomplished by the illusion of freedom with free markets. Although the left-wing populism of Sanders diverged from the right-wing populism of Trump in many ways, I want to highlight the one important issue on which they converged, namely the ill effects of free trade. The issue that free trade agreements were responsible for job losses resonated broadly among voters on both right and left. The broader issue here has to do with the failures of a particular vision of globalization centered in the Davos summits and in the consensus forged by global economic and political elites since the early 1990s through multilateral and bilateral trade agreements. Put briefly, my main point is that global capitalist um, elites have put their own political legitimacy at risk by being overly greedy and this is playing out in various ways around the world, from the US presidential elections to Brexit, to the rise of various anti-elite populist parties around the world. Um, although it could be argued that right-wing populism confuses the issues and blames various others for the sins of mostly white captains of industry, there's no doubt that it gains appeal by speaking to the existential condition of many people in the world today. That condition is well known. As Piketty, Harvey, and others have shown, neoliberalism has been accompanied by a sharp redistribution of wealth upward. Almost every economist believes that free trade is good for all nations involved. And there's little doubt that the globalization of world markets has resulted in a sharp increase in global wealth in the last three decades. The problem has been that all of this new wealth has been captured 
by the top tiers of the 1%. For example, India has grown by approximately 7% per annum for the last 25 years, but a measure of how concentrated the new wealth has, has been can be seen by the statistic that India now has the third highest number of billionaires after the US and China, and yet has a large share of the population, between 25 and 50%, living in absolute poverty. In the US, as in much of the global north, the effects can be seen through three phenomena. The downward mobility of the working class, especially in the loss of high-paid union jobs in manufacturing, held mostly by white workers. In the downward mobility of the middle class, which has experienced growing job insecurity and whose children can no longer dream of replicating a life that their parents enjoyed. And in the inability of people of color and immigrants to improve their life situations through higher wages and more secure employment. Temporary, unstable, precarious jobs have become the norm and if, and if and when they are available, and wages have remained static or fallen. Reagan and Thatcher began this downslide by attacking unionized blue-collar workers, and in this project, they were supported by those who belonged to the comfortable middle classes. But after manufacturing was successfully offshored, and wages of workers controlled, the cognitariat were next, and subsequent governments, both Democratic and Republican, have overseen the hollowing out of the middle class, the growing precarity of employment, and the erosion of social safety nets, of medical care, food provisioning, and so on. Thus, when people correlate the worsening of their life conditions with free trade agreements, they're not entirely mistaken. Um, not entirely mistaken about the source of their problems. Although much of the post-election analysis is focused on angry white voters, the larger point is that all voters have a right to be angry, and many lower-class non-white voters have even more reason to be angry at a political system that has seemingly abandoned them and that deals with them largely through carceral means. Instead of a sea of rising boats, we're experiencing the opposite a whirlpool in which those who are being sucked are attempting to blame others who are already caught in it. The capitalist class has benefited enormously from free trade and yet refused to share any of those benefits with people below them. Using the surplus that they garnered from free trade, they successfully lobbied governments to reduce taxes, cut regulations, receive government subsidies, and reduce the costs of doing business that Mitt Romney paid less tax than most middle-class families was a scandal, that Trump probably has paid no taxes at all, and that much of the wealth, much of his wealth, is due to public subsidies, makes these relationships even clearer. It's a system of extractive control without responsibility. Finally, Marx observed in the 18th Brumaire that history repeats itself the first time as tragedy, and the second as farce, substitute Reagan and Trump for the historical personages that Mark was talking about, and he might as well be talking about the contemporary United States. But in the 18th Brumaire, Marx also talks about how by mobilizing the anger of one group against another, Louis Bonaparte eliminates his enemies one by one. We have to be careful that Trump is not able to successfully pit white working class anger against the anger of people of color, LGBTQ groups, immigrants, Muslims, and others. 
Otherwise, the next four years will be a lot uglier than we can possibly imagine. A coalitional politics will have to forge solidarities beyond and around the divisions that his brand of politics has created, and that is no easy task. It will take hard work, but if it's not done, then we will get the triumph of the modern version of Louis Bonaparte. Again, I've delivered these remarks for Professor Akhil Gupta, who is not able to be here today. Thanks very much. Good morning, my name is uh, Ken Guest, and um, if the organizing question of the panel is what the just happened, uh, I want to ex explore the question of now what the do are we going to do. Um, my comments this morning will focus on the local organizing of the NAACP in North Carolina, Moral Mondays, and the work of the Reverend Dr. Bill William Barber, um, the role of religion in politics, the place of religion in our theoretical models of intersectionality. Uh, in the wake of the election, I've also been thinking a lot about where I will find strength and sustenance over the next four years, and where I will find a local community of activists to walk with and collaborate with and through whom I can focus my energy. As I survey the landscape confronting us over the next four years, we're in for a dangerous and difficult time that will be experienced both on a personal and profound scale. Um, as, uh, Bill McKibben has said the cost of the next four years will most likely be measured in degrees of temperature rise and the feet of sea level change. We're going to need some real strength for this journey. Uh, I teach at Baruch College in New York City. Um, last Wednesday after the election when I peeled myself off the floor after the, uh, I, I rec and I began to recognize all the stages of grief I was going through simultaneously, uh, I knew I had to get out of the house and um, out of my brooding and solitude, I made my way on Wednesday evening to the front of Trump Tower on 57th and Fifth uh, Avenue, um, uh, where I happened to join a group of about 15 or 20,000 young people who had emerged onto the streets and up and down Fifth Avenue. Um, it was very inspiring, it was incredibly inspiring. I was inspired by them, a vast multiracial sea of teenagers and 20-somethings mostly, I was definitely not in the age demographic represented there, um, but spontaneously gathering to share their wounds and to find their voice. Not my president. We reject the president-elect. The world is watching. Love trumps hate. Black lives matter. Muslim rights are human rights. Trans rights are human rights. Gay rights are human rights. Fuck Donald. We don't need him. All we want is our freedom. His hands are too small. He can't build the wall. Uh, <laughs> We are the popular vote. Uh, racist, sexist, anti-gay, Donald Trump is KKK. No hate, no fear, immigrants are welcome here. And then antiphonally, my body, said the women, her body, said the men. And under a large poster of Donald Trump's hair, my favorite, a twist to the famous civil rights song, We Shall Overcome. I was texting, texting these to Angelique during the protest. We both got a kick out of that. I went home inspired and revived. 
But after a few days of joining protests, I also felt the need to develop a longer-term strategy for surviving the next four years. It's cold out on the streets of New York. Um, we're going to need some inspiration. We'll need some sustenance. We're going to need some vision. And we'll need allies. Strategically, I'm asking myself where I will find the community of fellow travelers for the next leg in this journey. For as the South African Freedom Song says, Hamba nati kululi we tu. Come walk with us. The journey is long. Um, I've been particularly interested in the role of religion in this year's elections. The Muslim ban, the dog whistles about Jewish financial controls, the intense focus on the religious right, of the religious right on issues of abortion, homosexuality and prayers in schools, the rise of white nationalists and Aryan groups claiming a religious mandate for racism and hatred. hatred. Um, but in invoking the story of Reverend Barber and Moral Mondays, the NAACP's uh, work, the role of the black church, repairs of the breach, I want to point to a progressive stream within Christianity that has had tremendous power in our country's past and which Barber and his allies are attempting to mobilize again, not only in North Carolina, but across the country. Um, for those of you who, like me, may be looking for some hope and some inspiration and some successful organizing models, I'd like to suggest the kind of work that's going on in North Carolina. Um, Reverend Barber is a minister of the Disciples of Christ Church and head of the uh, NAACP. He's most famous for the Moral Mondays uh, uh, initiatives, um, but he's been at the center of constructing a multiracial, multireligious coalition of more than 260 groups in North Carolina that's emerged to challenge racism and sexism and homophobia and to build a movement based on the idea of a moral revival. Um, it is in many ways a model of intersectional organizing, uh, a model of the long-term organizing and coalition building that I think will be needed in a time like this. Um, Moral Mondays emerged with the passage of House Bill 589 in uh, North Carolina, which saw dramatic voting rights rollback in 2003, restrictions on early voting, voter ID laws. We've seen it all. It became the most restrictive um, voting regulations in the country. Uh, the movement was also lit fire in this year with passage of HB2, the bathroom bill, so-called bathroom bill, requiring transgendered people to use the bathroom of the gender assigned to them at birth. Uh, but it also banned local governments from passing minimum wage laws and anti-discrimination laws. Uh, there was, of course, a media firestorm. Musicians boycotted, PayPal canceled their new office there. The NBA canceled an all-star game. But underneath was a long-term grassroots intersectional, including religion, and progressive organizing campaign. So that despite the loss of Hillary by hundreds of thousands of votes and uh, the Senate candidate, Democratic Senate candidate Deborah Ross um, as well in the state, the grassroots organizing and voter registration and get out the vote efforts and the legal interventions created by the Moral Mondays program uh, created enough leverage and momentum to see some very significant victories. They won lawsuits, challenging voting restrictions leading up to the election. They managed to elect uh, Mike Morgan, the, an African-American Democrat whose unseating of a Republican Supreme Court justice shifted the balance of the court from conservative to liberal. Um, and they appear to have unseated the radical conservative Republican governor of North Carolina, Pat McCrory. Um, I think we have to cheer for these kinds of successes and we have to figure out how we're gonna be involved in them. I just wanna show you a 
couple, a minute or two of uh, William Barber because I think he's very inspiring and I'd like to just have his voice in the room. So if Brian, my new tech friend in the back, uh, can manage that, is he texting me now? Must not take the results of this election personally. We cannot afford to blame our neighbor or demonize even just Mr. Trump. We are together inheritors of a legacy that has rejected injustice over and over again. That is a part of our legacy. But that is not all we are. We are also the heirs of great dissenters who stood for right even when they were a minority of one, who found ways to be resilient and to be revived even when rejected. When the Jim Crow law of the Solid South was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court in the case Plessy versus Ferguson, only one justice, Justice Harlan, of Kentucky dissented, but his dissenting opinion laid the legal groundwork for Charles Hamilton Houston and Thurgood Marshall to eventually win Brown versus Board of Education. Oh yes, that's who we are. When Woodrow Wilson showed Birth of a Nation at the White House a hundred years ago this year, distorted the reconstruction, that lied and claimed that the black elected officials of the 19th century and white elected officials had participated in rigged elections. When he played that, that movie in the Oval Office that had been written by a man from Shelby, North Carolina. When he played it in the Oval Office, W.E.B. Du Bois, Ida B. Wells, Mary Wright Overton, and an interracial NAACP challenge the most powerful man in America to face his racism. That's who we are. When three civil rights workers were brutally murdered in the first days of Freedom Summer, black and white students chose not to run, but to press on together and to go right back to Mississippi's brutal racism because they believed they could change the world. Their mentor, Fannie Lou Hamer, taught them by example that we who struggle for freedom and who are sick and tired of being sick and tired, we don't ever turn back. She was nearly beaten to death in a Winona County jail. She was in jail being beaten when Mega Evers was shot, but she came out singing even louder and fighting even harder. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. And so after Tuesday's rejection of justice, which is as American as apple pie, we must apply now the moral defibrillator. You heard me talking about applying it to the nation. Put your hand on your own heart and apply it to yourself. It's time to be revived. It's time for us to be more determined to stand for love and justice and mercy. Less than a majority of Americans elected a mortal and not a god to be our next president. And they did not unelect the foundational principles of our Constitution. They did not unelect the great moral convictions of our faith. Fear, yes, is a key ingredient in the poisonous, toxic, and intoxicating brew of racism and classism. And once it's ingested, rationality goes out and self-destruction comes in. That is why now we who are sober must understand you were not unelected. You are a child of God. You are a prophetic witness. You are the Samuels that America needs right now. Brian, Brian. Oh, yeah. And, oh, hallelujah. So, Brian, can we stop there? We, Thank you. Um, 
If you have a chance to go on and hear his whole sermon on, from Sunday night called Revival and Resiliency After Rejection, it's a powerful, powerful message. Uh, so I just leave you with this question. Where will you find your inspiration and your sustenance? Uh, where will you find your community and fellow workers in the field in this dangerous time? What will, role will anthropology play in shaping that decision? You've been listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. We want to thank this Invited Sessions organizers and presenters for putting together such a wonderful and timely panel, as well as the American Anthropological Association for recording it and making the audio available to us. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, and you can also find us at callanth.org. That's C-U-L-A-N-T-H dot org. There on the website, you can find out more about all of the speakers featured in today's episode, as well as our previous interviewees and the journal Cultural Anthropology. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Call Anth. I'm Tariq Rahman. Thanks for listening.